Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Today, we were talking to Trevor Gibbs, who is someone... I, I'm not even entirely sure how to describe you, Trevor. How would you actually describe yourself as a, as a job? What would you say? Um, facilitator. Ooh, I like that. I and quite that, like that. Actually. That also yeah. does sound like a hitman's name. The yeah. vas- facilitator. It's the kind of thing a hitman would say, really, isn't mm-hmm. it? Good point. What do you do? I facilitate. Yeah. Uh, there's a few things that we didn't get to ask you, so I'm going to do that in a minute. But before I do, you said you wanted to tell me about the drunk on the roof. The drunk on the roof um, in Ethiopia. Yeah, that was that was quite an interesting one. Um, there's a town in Ethiopia called Harar, and it's uh, a Muslim stronghold. And up until probably 100 years ago, if you were a Christian, you would have been killed even trying to enter it. Mm. And um, I was there with a group once years ago. And um, I got woken at midnight and I opened the door to my room. And the manager of the hotel was stood there and he had a couple of guys stood behind him looking very nervously over his shoulder. And I'm like, yeah. And the guy says, sir, we, we have a problem with one of your guests. And I'm thinking, okay. And then he followed it up with, on the roof. And I'm thinking, that's not good. That's not going to be good. And this hotel had a flat roof. So we went upstairs and we walked onto the flat roof. And there was an American guy in the group who'd been very quiet, very unassuming. Obviously liked a little tipple, but not a problem. And he was basically stood on the roof with a head torch, a Bible and an empty bottle of Jack Daniels. And he was preaching from the roof to a city that was basically 90% Muslim. Um, A lot of the guys over the age of 18 were probably armed. And most of them had spent the afternoon eating their way through chat leaves. So they were probably on, probably coming down from a a drug-induced hangover at that point. Oh, my word. So we tried to calm him down. He wouldn't calm down. So I ended up locking him in his room. Or, no, sorry. I ended up taking him back to his room. And about 10 minutes later, I heard his door go again because his room was right below mine. So back up on the roof. And this time, we, we literally had to manhandle him off the roof, throw him in the room, lock him in. Mm. And I just sat outside his room all night until the next morning to make sure he didn't get out again. Oh dear. Could you ever have returned to that resort again then? Because that sounds like something that they would remember um, for a long time. Well, the the hotel guys were fine because, mm. you know, they, they were okay with me. And the rest of the group had no idea of what happened. How they missed this, I have no idea because this guy was screaming his head off. But they missed it completely. And luckily, nothing happened in the town. So, I mean, it it probably helped the fact that there was hyenas roaming the streets that probably kept people off the streets a bit more. So, Mm. so it's a lot of responsibility, though, because you are when you go off and do these treks and expeditions, you are in charge of a group of people who may not understand the culture of the place they're going to. So, I mean, that must weigh heavy on your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it happens quite often. I mean, the first thing I ever do when I get a group together is I give them a fairly involved briefing, not only in terms of what you're going to be doing, and what you're going to be seeing, but also do's and don'ts. Mm-hmm. And I always try and make sure that I keep up on that as well. If people do start overstepping boundaries, being inappropriate, then I, I do have to rein them in. And that can be quite hard sometimes, especially with corporate groups. 
because you know turning around to a CEO of a company or something saying you're not doing that they don't often appreciate that being told that in front of their own people so you have to be very careful how you manage it but um but yeah i mean you at the end of the day you've just got to do what's got to be done Mm. and when you say do what's got to be done you know you mentioned in the show that you have worked on projects post tsunami post earthquake and obviously you know work with people you're talking about just getting back from south africa working with people in um communities where they've been dealing with aids you must have seen and done a number of things that will stay with you for Ever. How on earth do you come back to a normal life after doing these things? Um, I'm not sure. That I think because I'm still doing it, I don't think I've actually ever come back to the normal life yet mm. in that respect. Although I'll come back to the island and, you know, do my day job and, you know, go around doing what we do. I always know I'm going to be going back. It's like I know next year I'm going to be doing an earthquake related thing I'm going to be doing two treks and I'm going to be doing a build in India so I guess once I get to a point where I stop doing it then that's going to suddenly hit home I think but because I haven't reached that point yet I don't think my mind has quite quite clicks into that mode so it's not like going on holiday and you come home and it's like oh back to work post holiday blues type thing because I always know I'm going to be doing another one the next thing yeah do you think you'll ever get to a point where that amount of travel and the adventure with it becomes tedious i don't think tedious i think it may get to a point where physically it'll just become too, too much. much because it's it's like uh, like next year as as it stands at the moment i'm doing four projects they're all long haul um three are going to involve corporate groups and they're going to be big groups and they're all going to be physical um so at some points i'm not kidding myself that you know i am going to get to a point where my body just goes you know what you need to stop doing this but i just don't want to think about that now what sort of reaction do you get from the corporate groups? Because presumably they are coming from an office environment and I would imagine are somewhat having their minds blown by what they are seeing and experiencing. Totally. yeah. I mean, a lot of them will be going completely out of their comfort zones. Um, I mean, you basically, you'll, you'll get people... I mean, with the corporates, you get a complete cross-section. You'll get everybody from director level, even CEO level, and then the other end of the spectrum, you might have people that work on the shop floor or the post off, uh, post room boy type thing. So you get a complete spectrum of people. So you are going to get some that, you know, they've never been out of Europe before. They've never not stayed in a hotel type thing. They've never experienced what they're experiencing. Um, and 90% or no, more than that, 95% of them are absolutely brilliant with it. They they appreciate what they're there for they appreciate what they're doing they sort of look to me and the local guys and say right you know you you tell us what you want and we will do it you get a very few that you know will not toe the line either they can't or they refuse to and you have to deal with them accordingly but now for the most part i mean they just embrace it they they actually embrace it and i've had people i've actually had people come back from projects who've handed their notice in. Wow. And then they, they've, they've just basically gone, my life is just so mundane, I'm going to go and do something. And they've literally taken a year out and they've gone back to the country they've come from to try and 
you know, do a bit more or they've volunteered to do stuff with other organisations. See, I do still wonder if, I know you said some people will do that, I still wonder if you have to be a particular sort of person to have that reaction because, for instance, you know, I was really fortunate that I went out to Malawi and was working with a water charity out there just for a couple of weeks, that was it, but we stayed in the villages in the middle of nowhere with these people who had absolutely nothing, but as you said on the show, the smiliest families you will ever meet despite their circumstances, which were utterly horrendous. And I remember thinking... My life will never be the same again. I'll never go back to normal life. I will never forget this. And yet it's amazing how, you know, a couple of months later, you just crack on. Hmm. And so I, I wonder what it is that is inside people like yourself or people like those few people who come on those expeditions with you and do change their lives entirely. I wonder if that's, do you think that's nature or nurture? I don't know. I mean, that's a difficult one. I mean, even from my perspective, I don't know whether it be nature or nurture because I mean my upbringing and my background there's nothing in that that would have presupposed that I would go into the field that I've gone into so I I don't really know where where it comes from so I, I don't know it's a difficult one I, I, I wouldn't even know how to how to categorize them it I mean they have got to be special people to do what they do mm-hmm uh, I mean, I'm not talking about me necessarily. I'm talking about the people who are going to give up something that they're comfortable with and it's a career to then take a year out and go and do something. Um, but what what compels them to do it? I, I couldn't say. I think everybody's different. Everybody mm. has their own reason for doing what they do. Well, I'm going to throw some quick fire questions at you now. You don't have to answer like with just one word, but these are just little things that have kind of come out of what we've been talking about today. And I wanted to just kind of roughly answer as best you can. When and where have you felt most, first of all, in danger? Where was I most in danger? Probably Egypt, because a guy was pointing a gun at my face. What? How did that come about? He was actually trying to shoot the bloke behind me, not me, but I was stood between them. So I actually had to disarm him. How do you disarm a man who's got a gun in your face? Um, and how did you know quickly. how? <laughs> uh, to be honest, I honestly don't know how I did it. I, just, I was just so angry. And I was more angry because I'd got a group of people on the bus who were fast asleep. It was like four o'clock in the morning. And my driver had had an argument with a drunk. And it was my driver trying to shoot the drunk. <gasps> and I was more concerned that my driver would be arrested. So therefore we'd end up stuck. stuck. And, yeah. And... So I just took the gun off him and I ended up putting the gun down the back of my trousers. But unfortunately, I never checked if the safety Safety was on or not. So I then had to sit on a bus for three hours with a gun down the back of my pants. Not knowing if it was going to Not knowing if the safety was on or not. Oh, oh, Trevor, that's insane. Okay, uh, another one. When and where have you felt most humbled? Humbled. God, that is a difficult one. Purely because of the amount of places. That's what I was thinking, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd probably say on some of the African projects where it's been working with AIDS, affected families, because it's in with them, it's not so much that it's a disaster relief. It's more of a... I mean, it is a disaster, obviously, but it's it's more you, you, you're dealing with kids who mm. have nothing. And grandparents, because all of the parents' generation are dead. And you just think everything you've got compared to everything they've got or not got. And I think, yeah, prob- probably 
when I was working in Africa on those projects. Mm. And I can imagine tomorrow you'll probably think of something else as well. Probably. Uh, when and where have you felt most angry? Most angry? Um, or angered by a situation? Oh, that is a tough one. To be honest, I think angry is more the reaction I get from people about things. So it wouldn't necessarily be a place I'm in. I mean, I might be angry about the fact that money's sort of gone or what have you, but it's it's more maybe reactions you get back at home. I'd, I'd say if I had to pick a place away, one that's just come to my mind was in Haiti after the earthquake. And I was in a bar talking to a guy who basically, he was an American guy, and he'd basically got about $5,000 worth of medical equipment sat on a boat in the harbour and he couldn't land it because the guy whose responsibility it was to actually give him the paperwork, who was a Haitian, wouldn't give it to him unless he got his kit back. Oh. So basically there's $5,000 worth of medical equipment for people who desperately need it and this guy wouldn't hand over the paperwork until he got his cut. Oh my word. So that... That definitely would. And sort sadly, of be up it's there. probably quite a regular situation, yeah, that is. Unfortunately. Isn't it? Okay, then, where <clears throat> and when have you felt most at peace? Mm, most at peace. Probably sat on the top in Namibia, in the Namibian desert. They've got the highest sand dunes in the world. And I climbed to the top of them at sunrise. And there was literally nobody else around. So it was literally sat on the top of this sand dune and there was just no sound, nothing, and the sun rising. So. That is beautiful and a wonderful image to end on. Trevor Gibbs, you've been a joy to talk to today and thank you for staying a bit longer to be on our podcast as well. Uh, we will be posting all the links to Trevor's blog and website uh, on the Manx Radio Facebook page along with this uh, this podcast as well, obviously. You've obviously found it if you're listening to me saying this because you wouldn't know otherwise unless you click the link. So there you go. Uh, we'll be back with Women's Day. Obviously, on a daily basis, you can tune in from 2pm and listen to us live or we will post the Listen Again link on the Manx Radio Facebook page. You can listen for seven days and the same goes for Trevor's interview which we had on today. Thanks very much for listening. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shore.com. Love being sure. Terms and conditions apply.